I don't think we're going to solve capitalism on the podcast. I mean, today. <laughs> I mean, maybe after a few episodes. All right, John, do you want to do an intro and then we'll start Jen off at the beginning? Sure. I'm John Mejias in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Welcome again to We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... I don't really need people to know what I'm talking about. Private ideas. And that's why all my works are untitled, because, well, I don't really need you to know exactly what's going on. This episode, we're talking to... Shen Ray. About... I need to be able to form things within the painting as I go along. It makes it more exciting, because then I'll, I'll be like, oh my God, I'm going to add so-and-so, you know, and I get really excited by it. I want to return to the painting as soon as possible. So usually the way we do this, Jen, is we kind of start, we do chronological. So we start with you as a fetus. Oh, God. And then go. <laughs> I don't remember that. Move forward a little bit. Okay, so what's the first thing you remember? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little trailer in uh, North Carolina near Raleigh. God, my first memory is that probably crawling through the grass in front of the trailer. And uh, I actually went back to look at that trailer about 15 years ago, and it was tiny. It was unbelievable. Who lives there now? No one. I think it's gone. My cousin lived there for a while. It was like our rotating family trailer. Oh, my gosh. My mother's going to kill me about this. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in a regular style house, but it's like people kind of rotated in and out of this trailer as need dictated. Do you know what I mean? Like, Sure. So it was like an auxiliary to the house and to whatever other thing is like. Was it a double wide at least? No, it was tiny. No one lives in a wide these days. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's like as big as my kitchen. So it was the 70s. So what did your parents do? My father's an optician. He just retired. And my mother um, is British. She came over as a au pair into uh, California near San Francisco. Then she... She worked in a bank, and then she went to art school. My mother's actually the artist of our family. Oh, okay. Yeah, when I was growing up, really, that was the focus, that she was the one that could draw and make anything, and she did things with fabric and yarn. And then we actually were in art school together. And my sister was business school at the same time, all at the same college. So my mother and I in the art department and my sister in the business department. You guys were to art school together? What school was that? What was that like? (laughs) Well, we kept kind of separate hours because my mother's like was doing metal work at that point. She went through all the art classes and then mostly focused on metal smithing and sculpture. And I'm more drawing, painting and printmaking. It's like a tiny school. So it's funny that we were not bumping up against each other, but we kind of weren't. It was at Winthrop University, actually. So she was like the day shift and you were night shift. Kind of. I had a lot of different jobs to hold down. But we knew of each other within the school. I would hope so. (laughs) Well, I was a very good art school student, I have to say. Like a rule obeyer. Like, you know, you tell me what you need to have done, I'll do it. It's funny because now I'm teaching classes there. Yeah. And I want everybody to kind of be more of a rule breaker. And I'm a rule breaker now. But when I was in art school, I was the very perfect little art school student. Does your mom still make art? And what was she making when you were, before you were making anything? What was that environment for you? 
I can never remember a time when I wasn't drawing something. So I can't honestly say like she was drawing and I was drawing. So what was she drawing? I mean, was she drawing like, like metal chicks and pink spandex? <laughs> no, she likes animals. Her, okay. her whole thing, when we were in school together. She made these great jewelry pieces I wear, which are made of ebony and silver and gold and really strong, semi-primitive. She just gave me a lot of these pieces and I wear them every once in a while. They're pointy and sharp, so they're kind of difficult, but she made those in art school. Cool. And so when you were growing up, she had a day job, but she was also making work. And then eventually you were just like, I want to go to art school too. And I think I always was going to art school because once you get on this path that you're an artist, especially if you are doing art so early. It will forever dominate your destiny. Like the dark side. Yeah, exactly. I don't say like it was when people come to me now, they're like, oh, my daughter likes to draw. I'm like, oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> like, run away. I teach art to grade school kids and some first graders are always drawing. I'm like, you're screwed, kid. You're screwed. Slap the pencil <laughs> right out of their damn hand. <laughs> I got in trouble as a kid from my grandmother because I was drawing women like not not probably not as sexy as. I don't know. Just I was just drawing women all the time. Just what I do now, I did it as a kid. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother confronted me about it. I was really like pretty small. And I was like, I don't really understand what you're getting at, like why you're so angry. Right. I just saw my cousin at Christmas and she always brings it up. She's like, remember when grandma got so mad at you because all you would draw were women? And I was like, yeah, but I just didn't get it. I don't even want to say. It is interesting because like I actually think that a lot of little girls like often just draw women it isn't even a queer expression thing. It's just like they're drawing like fashionable uh -huh. little girls and houses and stuff. Like that seems almost strange that you're even weirder than. But maybe she did see something in it. I, I don't know. Maybe she was very perceptive about it as well. Like maybe it was something that went beyond the normal. Even if she's not saying, oh, we've got like a budding lesbian in our midst. Maybe she saw something beyond just a regular girl drawing that. Although I would say that it is a little bit about mirroring and also drawing the fashionable girls. And I definitely felt a compulsion to do it. And I remember being really into it, but not in any kind of specific way I could pinpoint like psychologically at the time. Maybe she was just a conceptualist and she was like, stop making objective <laughs> drawings. Like Exactly. It's all about minimalism. What is this? No, I don't know. It's just a very funny thing. I was always called upon to draw like my whole life. Somebody would say like, we need X, Y, or Z drawn. You know, it does become your destiny. So since teaching students currently, I asked them in a class, I was like, when did you know or did you know you would be an artist? You know, that sets you on this path that you can't get off of. So it's something to really think about and about your history, basically. So in high school, were you like, happy there or you like art school was like a freedom escape from that you know you get older and i hate to say i hated high school but i actually did hate high school of course as many art students do yeah i know right and so it's funny i met my husband and he's very cheerful i'd always dated like dark brooding kind of nightmarish kind of people and i met my husband very cheerful and he was in art school too and I was like, didn't you just hate high school? And he's like, no, I loved it. I had a great time. I was in all kinds of clubs. I was like, what? <laughs> I almost took <laughs> up with him because I was very suspicious of someone who would actively embrace high school. But anyway, it was a good person to link up with because he's like cheerful. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So John's from New York, Long Island, and I'm from like DC. So okay. we're just imagining a North Carolina high school 
it's all fantasy. We don't know what we're imagining. So like football teams and cowboy hats. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I mean, was it like that, or was what actually was it like? Well, I think the the point is for my high school experience, we didn't have not even mentioning computers. We we had a computer lab, but we just didn't have any kind of input from the outside world. You know, we didn't have cable. We were so out far out in the woods. MTV was on briefly, and then it was taken away by a local station who said it was basically satanic. Oh, wow. All of our broadcasting was run by a Christian organization, and they took it off the air. So what you're saying is it was exactly like we're imagining. Yeah, but... <laughs> Hunting? There was hunting? There's a lot of hunting. And that's the other thing. Like, it took me a long time to, when people started shooting people at school, I was like, we all had guns. Like, why are people shooting everybody up? Because everybody I knew in high school had a gun or their family owned a gun. And nobody would have dreamed of taking it to school and turning it on anyone. You know, it's something you use for hunting, not hunting students. So it is kind of like what you imagine, but... um, that's why I think sometimes when your creativity is a little stifled, it can actually be helpful. You know what I mean? Like when we interview people on the show, we come to a biographical format for a reason. It's like these things usually end up meaning something. Yeah, definitely. Sean McCarthy said, he's from Texas. He said his dad was like a rock dude, but at some point he's also a business owner. And he said, here in Texas, son, the poor people listen to rock music. And so the wealthy class listen to country. So I'm going to start listening to country music. And he like tried for a couple of years to become a country guy and it didn't take. And he had to go back to like ACDC and stuff. I'm wondering, obviously your work is like deeply into like that culture. Did Was that a thing in high school for you? Yes. Totally. I always feel like I've always been an observer and not necessarily a participant. A lot of my friends were in the metal and that, and my school was very metal centric, like, um, you know, just typical ACDC written everywhere. And all my friends were more like that, like people that hung out in smoking areas <laughs> and oh, listened yeah. to Priest. And I feel like as a, as a girl, a quote girl back then, you know, I wasn't a member of that group per se. Like I, I didn't like weigh in on the new ACDC album. I mean, it's kind of like just observing boys talking about this. Right. For me, I mean, I grew up on the Beatles because my mother, as I mentioned, she's British. We were like, our family's like Beatles obsessed, but definitely later on, I used this kind of idea of what metal is and why poor people invest so heavily in metal, which is very funny that you, you bring that up about country and metal, because obviously you're, you're looking for a source of power and you find it through this music. And I really started thinking a lot more about that as an adult, you know, like how that feels to listen to that music. And I mean, I love Black Sabbath. I would say for me that as far as metal goes, I really have always loved Ozzy and Black Sabbath, probably because they're so stripped down. Yeah. If you want me and John to talk about Black Sabbath, the podcast won't okay. end, <laughs> you know. I saw a performance where there was that wailing siren in the background. Like, I was like, oh, she likes Black Sabbath. Yeah, well, I did. I used Black Sabbath in a performance. I used Black Flag in a performance. Yeah. I used Public Enemy is probably partly where the siren comes from. And oh, okay. I like also just like, you know, like rock hits. Like my latest piece, we did American Woman. And when I was a kid, I always loved that song. And then I started thinking a lot about it when I moved back from Berlin and the lyrics and and having like a feminist punk woman 
kind of reinterpret it. But anyway, I do, I do like metal a lot. But now as an adult, I appreciate it more, to be honest, than when I was a teenager. You sort of get a, that's a new perspective on it. I love to go back and hear things like Judas Priest that I did in high school and just takes on a new meaning for me. It's, it's really fun to keep going back again and again. It's really funny. And actually a, a boyfriend of mine, this was kind of interesting. He had this huge collection of metal records and some of it was terrible. Like he would pull out these albums and we would look at the covers and the covers were horrible. Right. It was like whatever that there's like an album cover with like a woman on a leash just these awful, like, scorpions. Yeah, kind of in the Scorpions, and just these terrible 80s covers. And I remember being horrified yeah. by them. And now I think back, like, oh, if I could only get my hands on this massive collection of metal albums with their covers. Because, of course, they're, they take on this whole different meaning. I'm not as offended by them. They're very funny and bizarre. I do. I love Judas Priest's um, covers, I think, are ma- totally magnificent. I mean, they're so good. Yeah, the, some of the drawings, like, are still... Starting in like the 70s, you started to have a kind of art on the covers that didn't have a close antecedent in art art. Mm-hmm, right. You know, like in the 60s, you could see a very, like the psychedelic art was like close enough to like stuff you'd see in Art Nouveau, plus like, you know, Andy Warhol color schemes and some op art. And you could see a very close connection. But at a certain point in the 70s, they started to like, they wanted to produce a certain kind of imagery, but there was no art world touchstone for it. And so it sort of became its own thing. And now we can say album cover mm-hmm. art. And it, it refers to a, a ways of doing photography that aren't quite like anything in art photography until after that. Or, and they're not like TV commercials, really. And they weren't even like music videos because they were so like janky and thrown together in a lot of weird ways. It was like the beginning of like, of a thing that doesn't have a name in art that didn't have a equivalent. Right. And now people reference it, but back then it just looked to me like it was super sexist. It was super cheap. The colors were horrible, you know, like red, shiny black, you know, just so trashy. Now you think like, who was putting that together? Like they must've come from some graphics background. Yeah. You know, now we have so many crossovers and cross pollinations. It's not a big deal to say like, oh, I really love that. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. But back then it would have been super nerdy also, like the kind of guy that would wear a trench coat and a rat T-shirt yeah, (laughs) with like a chain. (laughs) Really ugly. Um, Were you looking at comics at this time? Because it looks like at some point you did. Yeah. When I was a kid, I loved Fantastic Four and I really liked Red Sonja. That comic, unfortunately, probably informs a lot of what I do. It's not so easy to find these old Red Sonja comic books. I looked at them online a little bit, you know, because she was this really powerful figure with this sword and I really liked that. And then this is a little bit of a secret-ish thing, but I also- Not anymore. All right. Millions of people are going to accuse me of things after this podcast. I really love this comic, Wicked Wanda. Do you know this comic? No, I don't know Wicked well, Wanda. Well, it's from Penthouse Magazine. It's, oh, okay. It was kind of like the badass antidote to whatever was in Playboy. It's about this, like, ugh, I don't know what she is. She's like a countess that lives in a castle and whips people. And oh, okay. you have to look it up because yeah. it's beautifully I'm, drawn, first of all. But secondly, like, once again, it's this woman who... She takes people captive in her castle that are um, evil political figures, and she chains them up and, like, whips them. You know, it's like Idi Amin. How did you stumble upon Wicked Wanda? I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Oh, because a mom, mom doesn't like <laughs> like where you were reading Penthouse. As of this moment, um, no one will hear this podcast. <laughs> anyway, but that's the funny thing about being an artist and thinking about your history is just all of this stuff going into a pod and things that you shouldn't have discovered that you do discover and it has an impact on what you do. And I don't know, there's just a lot of stuff that goes into my work from my past, of course, but yeah, Wicked Wanda and a, and a bunch of other comics. I do love comics. Somebody was... They were tumbling something from, uh, it was a book about the 1920s movies. I was saying, like, in the 1920s, all the biggest movie stars were women. If you took a sample plot from some of these movies and imagined them being remade today, they would be, like, shocking and outrageous because these, like, super Mm hypersexualized women, but nothing bad happens to them, (laughs) is still not a plot that Hollywood puts out ever. So there's like this this one story of like this woman who breaks up with her husband and then she just basically has a sex romp through Europe in this like a 20s movie. And then there's like a line in there where she's like, I've been having a continuous orgy (laughs) for most of my life and I love it. (laughs) Nothing bad happens to her and the plot, she doesn't die or anything. And they're like, okay, imagine that being made like this year with Gwyneth Paltrow or Demi Moore. Like, no one would make that movie. Right, because you have to be killed at the end. Another thing that I'm really influenced by is, like, pre-code movies from the early 30s. And one of my favorite movies is called Babyface, and it's amazing. Anyone who hasn't seen it should see it, but it's Barbara Stanwyck, and she sleeps her way to the top of this business organization. And she doesn't have a downfall. She kind of has a revelation, but it all works out in the end. But it's just like what you're saying. It's She's like, I've kind of been, it kind of starts out with an abuse situation in her family. And it's pre- it's said pretty clearly what's happened. And she doesn't try to hide it like after you had all these restrictions on cinema. And then she's like, I'm just going to sleep my way to the top. And it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, that's another influence is for me is um, pre-code film and strong female protagonists with no apologies, as you're saying. So you get to art school and are your teachers like, yeah, do your thing. Or are they like, stop drawing comics. <laughs> You're going to be a real artist. Or no, I go? told you, I'm a, I, I was the good art art girl. But I did, <laughs> at some point, I wanted to draw, you know, more figurative. And I wanted to use watercolor. And watercolor in art school, and you probably know this, is like completely out of the question. So I had to take classes outside of my regular university to learn. I had to, I had to learn watercolor techniques with old people. They were like, I think somebody in the class was like 96 years old and they were so much better than me. But I think that's part of a little problem with art school that the students need to know if you're not being taught something, you have to go outside school. You know, you can't just rely on your professors to tell you what to do, what not to do. I mean, my main painting professor was an abstract expressionist who painted in oils. And I was like, I'm not interested. I want to paint with pen and ink and I want to paint with watercolor. And he just looked at me like, you got to be kidding me. And I was like, well, what about George Gross, who I lo- I've always loved? You know, also yeah. 20s and 30s, Berlin, different artists during that time period. And he didn't really have an answer for that. Of course, George Gross is in the canon, so that's fine. Yeah. But he just couldn't see the tie-in. And he certainly was not about to teach me how to do colorful watercolor techniques. So I had, yeah, I ran into some problems. <laughs> I feel like the fact that you took a class kind of even makes you even a better art student. I know so many people who want to learn a technique that wasn't taught in school and they just made something up. I had not heard of masking fluid (laughs) until five years ago. 
And it was because I was just reading a book of some 70s right. album cover illustrator. And he was like, yeah, I used masking fluid to make this like big gradient and it didn't spill across the rock onto ev- the rest of the painting. And I was like, what the fuck is that? You know, but it's like, oh, that's something that like an artist like me should have tons of that shit. And I had never heard of it. I think so many of the best painters in the last 15, 20 years and drawers or people who had to just make shit up because they didn't learn anything in art school. Yeah. In slight defense of art school, there isn't enough time to learn all your techniques. But you, I think you might be talking yeah. about Roger yeah. Dean. Are you talking about Roger Dean, who's like the masking guy? But, you know, I worked in an art store and we had a lot of old, different products on the shelves and masking liquid was one of them. So I knew about it, but I think you're right. It's like, who would bring that up? Like, oh yeah, why don't you go home and work with a airbrush and some masking fluid? A lot of these things are kind of lost and they could be used in some great contemporary artwork. So I'm always like, bring it back. Like tell people a little bit more about materials too. There are a lot of things out there besides this materials list with X, Y, and Z on it, you know, that we've all agreed on. I also just feel like oil paint is... I mean, maybe this is a good reason to teach it so early, but it's like the least tractable kind of paint in the world. Like it's like painting with mud and half the time you're working with it, you're cleaning. It's not a good way for a kid with a head full of images to start getting those images in front of them and decide what they want to do with them. Yeah. I mean, obviously different people learn in different ways. So it always seemed like a weird impediment because at least at Cooper Union, I don't know how it was it purchased John or... You take painting class sophomore year and everybody's painting these oil paintings and then 90% of them never paint an oil painting again and they've just spent all this time just trying to make an apple look like an apple in oil paint when they could have been drawing an apple or, you know, like a thousand other ways to get an apple on a piece of paper. Yeah, I, I taught I taught oil painting for high school kids and I, I actually tried to warn them ahead of time, but, you know, I guess sometimes the learnings and the doing, but they were, they were, there was a miserable group of students and it was, you know, an advanced class. They're like, what is this? I thought everything was made in this stuff. What is it? It was a big to-do. You know, I used to think like, who agreed that we would all paint with this stuff? <laughs> I was like, which historical person in the 17th century had made this decision? And I mean, I think acrylic is is a little bit weird too, because it's plastic. You know, basically you're painting with plastic. Point is, there are so many different techniques. It's like, I hate that oil paint is the go-to for a quote, serious painting, which is like, why? You know, why, yeah. why is that? It's just one more material. I blame Vasari, but I blame him for everything. I have to pause to point out that our podcast has turned into Picasso is terrible, oil painting is terrible, cops are terrible. This is just our podcast. Sorry, we can get back to <laughs> I feel like that. I can put that on my gravestone. I'm happy with that. <laughs> I painted in oil, but I, you know, maybe it's just sour grapes. It's like I'm not the most expert oil painter, but I never felt like it was, it's like somebody handing you a trumpet and saying like, play this. And you're just like, what? But I, I've never really had any experience on that. I think in art school now, there are more techniques to explore. I don't, maybe oil has lost some of its supremacy. I don't know who knows. Okay. So you're in art school. Are you making work that's like the precursor of what we know now, juggling you, or are you doing something else at this point? I making work to get rid of and throw away, which I don't tell students, but I'm, I don't know. I don't look back on my art school work. It's like practice. I, I mean, I think you could tell there's like a timeline. I was definitely able to work on some things like a little early performance stuff. I started thinking a lot more about music 
and a lot more about what I wanted to do after art school. I soaked up a lot in art school, but when I graduated, I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is return to my first love or loves. I'm going to do that because there's no one around from art school to give me a critique or tell me not to do that. So I really started investigating, I think, a little bit more like with pop culture. And and I went back to my love of using pen and ink and watercolor techniques and also my subject matter. You know, I didn't have to defend anything, which I think a lot of people should think about. Like once you're out of art school, you take all the stuff you've learned, but I think you should remember to be true to yourself. Like, what are you really interested in? Are you really interested in in painting a 10 foot canvas? You know, is that really what you want to do? And I think a lot of people make a continuation of art school when they really should think about what they truly want to devote their life's work to, you know, what's really interesting. What do they really want to explore? So definitely I was working on the stuff I work on now. I worked on an art school, but it took me years to really get up to speed with everything. And you had a day job at this point? Yes, I've always had a day job. I've worked since I was 15, and I worked at an amusement park for a long time. I know. I met my husband at the amusement park. He was dressed as Huckleberry Hound, and I ran the rides. So we met a long time ago, and then we went to art school together. Were you disappointed when you found out he was a man (laughs) underneath that hound costume? (laughs) I thought you were a blue dog wearing a straw hat. (laughs) What's happening? No, and actually it's funny. He has a a funny story about a colleague of his who was hosing down one of the characters out back and some kid ran around the corner and saw it and just screamed and screamed and screamed. (laughs) But I I, I knew there was a man underneath there. We worked at the amusement park for a long time together. I actually always had a a job in the art world. Like I worked for the Gray Art Gallery in New York. And I worked at the um, New Museum for a long time in New York as their registrar, as a very... Mm -hmm bad registrar. <laughs> so when people are like, ah, they booked me into physics ed and metalworking at the same time, that was you? I always had a job in art administration out, yeah. outside of college. I always had a pr- pretty big jobs, but at home I was always working on my art. Like when I lived in, in Williamsburg, I had a studio in my house that was like the size of a closet. And so I would work a full-time job like a pretty higher level full-time job. And then I would come home and then I started doing it full-time in Berlin. But before that, it was more training in a weird way, like practicing training, uh, you know, away from other people's eyes, basically. Do you feel like the carnival influenced your work? Because so many people we interview, they have like a job, (laughs) like right as they get out of school. And then you can see that that job influenced their work. And they'll be like, Oh, like I was designing toys and you're like, oh, and it feeds in like your work has a real carnivalist. Was there a particular ride that you ran? Yes, I ran this awesome ride called Blackbeard's Revenge. And what it was, (laughs) and I I totally admit that the theatricality of it, I've always been very interested in this idea of decadence, which is like this decay. And I think it comes from that for sure. But um, I ran this ride, Blackbeard's Revenge. And what it was, was kind of like this cylinder within a hut. And you would get in it and it would rock back and forth as if you were on a pirate ship. Eventually, it would go all the way around so that you were looking at the bottom of kind of like the ocean where there'd be like jewels and pirates treasure and pirates like as skeletons. And there was a light show and it it was like a storm inside. So if that doesn't have direct relationship, I don't know what (laughs) it does. And I've always loved this. Like at the amusement park, 
you'd have this kind of like pseudo glamorous thing and then you'd go into the back area and it would be like garbage cans. Or as I mentioned, a guy hosing down a Dino head smoking a cigarette with like, you know, holding a Coke can. So I've always been interested in um, the rougher side of theater, the face and the back. Did you have to do any barking to invite people to get on the ride? Like, come to the ride. No, we're definitely like, get out of here, go home. (laughs) You know, I had a real relationship with this amusement park for a long time. I'm also very used to working with a wide variety of characters and people. And that comes from working at this place. Because I also had a lot of problem children. Like my boss would give me the people that had problems in a regular working environment. So he would give them to me as a manager and I would manage them. At the carnival. Yes. Why would you get them? I was more accepting. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I just treated everybody the same. I'm like, you know, I don't really care that you've got this thing going on. I mean, I don't know how deeply I want to get into it, but I had some people I had to work with and I had to kind of work around their quirks. I don't want to call them quirks, though, because they were just... They were carny folk. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. They were square pegs. This was more like six flags. Okay. For instance, I had some gender issues to work through with various people way before that was a topic, you know? Okay, yeah. And so they would give me people and I would just not make it a big deal. You know, I'm like, okay, well, we'll just work around. Okay, you're just easygoing. Yeah, I mean, that, like, sort of tranching people who don't fit. Mm -hmm. So they're together, and they're like, you're weird, you deal with them. Right. (laughs) Is like an informal way of dealing with communities that aren't communities yet. Mm Mm-hmm. So you hear all these stories about like old Berlin and they're like, oh, the lesbians and the and the queers and the and the Jews would hang. And they're like, but they didn't even have those words yet. Like, how did they know to hang out? It was, they were just like subtly being sort of pushed away toward each other. Like, oh, you you guys are both wearing boots. You hang out together. Yeah. And I think with art, people knew I went to art school. So going back to the art school thing. I think people that go to art school or that are, quote, artists are generally more accepting of other people that are not the, quote, norm. I mean, I think my boss knew that and was like, okay, you take these people because you're not as judgy. (laughs) And I think that's like the art school thing. That's interesting in terms of your work. Were you a Bowie fan? No, I, I wasn't until a little bit later. Like, it's funny because a lot of people that came to him late, they'll mention like, let's dance or... Dancing in the street, which to me is like, ooh, okay, 80s Bowie, really? like, Right, yeah. <laughs> but I only got hip to like the cool Bowie later. So for me, I first saw him singing China Girl. So when I was oh, yeah. a kid, I saw him sing this. And I didn't know that was Iggy Pop's song. I mean, I know now. but And I just thought, what the hell is going on? You know, it just looks so different. But for me, 80s Bowie really is my Bowie. But of course, I'm really interested in him. And theatricality of course of his costuming and his persona and it is really sad because I I, again also looking back from an artist's point of view to make art to the very end and how impressive is that just to try your best to just push it to the very end but he was also like a a kind of a sci-fi guy okay here's another thing (laughs) when Uh I was a kid my father had a huge science fiction book collection massive and I love the covers of these books. I kind of like hated them and loved them at the same time, kind of repulsed by them. He had the book, The Man Who Fell to Earth. 
And it didn't have Bowie on the cover. It had a guy that looked like David Bowie. He had like a very alien looking head and this gray space outfit. And I was fascinated, utterly obsessed with this book cover. I think somehow that's a connection, like a thread to my love of Bowie now. This 70s, our album covers and book covers were definitely their own genre. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of art people would like to think is that commercial art is an echo Mm. or a like a worse version or a sort of cheap and pimped out version of something that was going on in the gallery art scene. But if you look at like those penguin covers at a certain point, it's just like those art directors are smoking their own weed (laughs) and doing their own drugs and they are making up their own imagery for those novels that doesn't really have anything to do with something you would see in a museum, at least not more than, you know, any other artist that would be making art at that point. It's true. But I mean, also, I think a lot of artists in America come from a middle class background, like let's call it either low, middle or high middle. And those are things we're exposed to early on. You know, like if you, you, you always have to have influences and we have so much pop culture around us. You know, we had these books falling out of my father's closet. I, yeah. I didn't see in person a piece of real art until I was probably 18 or 19 hmm. because of where we lived. I, I'm talking about like a famous painted artwork. We had some art books at home, but I mean, where else are you going to get your input? It's all around you in the form of graphics and pop culture. So it's not entirely separate. I see what you're saying for sure. But, you know, how can you separate that out in the way we live here? Yeah. It's almost impossible. So, I mean, I remember specifically, I was like, oh, there it is, art, <laughs> the capital A <laughs> on a wall. And it, it was in Washington. It was in Washington, D.C. It was at the National Gallery. Oh, okay. That was where I was from. Because the National Galleries were free. Yep. That was like a thing when I was a kid. But it was like, ma- my mom would be like, we're going to go to the art gallery because I want to go to the art gallery. And then I'm like, but I want to go to the dinosaur museum or the... Air and Space Museum. And so, like, my feeling was always, like, if art was made on purpose to look cool, then why can't it look as cool as, like, rocket ships and dinosaurs? Um, So I think that even above and above access to art, I think that there's something about uh, the graphic commercial art that it had an appeal all its own. It wasn't just that you're starved of art. It Mm. was also that it had its own thing going on. Yeah, it, it can't. I mean, it's very electrifying. It's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to reach out and grab you. It's not subtle. You know, I think especially when you're growing up, your tastes go towards, you know, something like that. Like, wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Later on, you're like, okay, I can appreciate something a lot more subtle. Like, oh, Agnes Martin. Actually, it's funny. A friend of mine used to love Agnes Martin. And I'm like, I don't get it. You know, now I get it. But Really? I don't. <laughs> Come on. It's a whole other thing now. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at your art. You've got this woman on what looks like be a flying carpet with a little red TV next to her with an orange halo. And like, <laughs> like. You're saying that's not Agnes Martin? Like, what the hell? I'm saying that I, I believe that you appreciate Agnes Martin, but I also think that I don't think she was bringing a lot to the table <laughs> that uh, your other influence thus far discussed have not in terms of this piece. Just agree to disagree. That's, no, it's true. I'm just saying I appreciate her now, but you're right. Like, again, going back to, like, finding out where your real source material comes from, 
Sure. It's not Agnes Martin, for sure. It's other other things. Definitely some contemporary art, but not that, really. <laughs> I, I have a question about how you think about stories in your work, because all these things that we've been talking about as influences are things that part of, I think, the resonance of, like, say, a 70s album cover, but especially those book covers, mm-hmm. is you'd see the image, and then you would think, at least for me with those sci-fi books, how could a book possibly be about this? Part of the content was how there's this whole secret thing behind it, which was the novel right. that somehow had to live up to this image or incarnate it. And so its status as an advertisement for that book gave it a lot of its mystery. And when you have that kind of imagery essentially illustrating nothing and everyone knows that you just made it to be that picture then you have a little bit of a thorn in your relationship to the story your picture is telling because you have to convince the viewer that they're getting enough of the story just from the picture. Right. Which, I mean, I know because my work is like really influenced by a lot of kinds of illustration. And so that's something I always think about is like, what can I not get away with that someone who has a story literally typed out behind their work can get away with? Is that something that you ever think about? No, because I mean, I feel like a lot of the covers that I liked, the book behind them for me was very boring. Wasn't that interested actually in the text. Although, like I said, I read The Man Who Fell to Earth a lot. I read a lot of Bradbury when I was a kid. I read a lot of Stephen King as a kid, especially the covers that I liked that my father had. I was never that interested in like Asimov or I always thought like, God, who would read this? So boring, like space world, you know, landing on this planet and I felt like to me, the thing was enough, you know, like yeah. I never even got beyond that. Although Ray Bradbury had a painter or an artist that he worked with for most of his books and you see it a lot. He did very fine line black ink drawings and I loved those drawings as a kid. So sometimes it was a bit of a crossover between the, the story and the illustration or the, even the cover. There were so many things I was influenced by almost just as an artist, like just soaking it up with your eyes and like, that's enough. With my work, I don't really need people to know what I'm talking about. Mm. It's kind of private ideas. And that's why all my works are untitled because um, I was like, well, I don't really need you to know exactly what's going on. <laughs> so if you, if you saw somebody looking at your work and they just kind of said, oh, I don't get it. Like, how would you feel about that? I'd be like, all right, move on. (laughs) I mean, I really developed this whole, I really don't give a shit kind of attitude about things as an adult, you know, like, how can you like everything? You know, it's just not your, your taste. What are you going to do? Like, I know people are very sensitive sometimes. And I mean, I'm not saying that if I heard something, it wouldn't affect me greatly. I'd probably kill me for like a couple of days, but you just got to get right back up on the horse and be like, I just, I got nothing for you. Just move on. Yeah. Not everybody's for everybody. Okay. So you're working at the, the ride and you're dating droopy dog. <laughs> and then you're a registrar and you're working at home on your stuff. All right. And then you move to Berlin. What happened there? I, as many people, I got a bit burned out about living in New York. And I think at that point, a lot of New Yorkers were moving to Berlin, much to Berlin's dismay. Like, what the hell? He's got these people showing up. I don't want to call it priced out because I could have worked and lived in New York. And I love New York. But you just get exhausted after a while. So 
my husband at that point, I've had the same husband the whole time, the guy that was in art school and the guy that was Huckleberry Hound, he turned in <laughs> magically into an electronic DJ. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the point emerges. We, we are a chameleon couple, many different hats. I, I actually encouraged it because when I lived in New York, I worked a lot and I was like to my husband, stay home and work on your music and transform yourself into an internationally known electronic music DJ. <laughs> and he was like, okay. We're finally breaking away from metal with this statement. Yeah, now you're getting judged. <laughs> What's his name, his DJ name? His name is DJ Donna Summer, and his name's Jason Forrest. So he was like, well, we have the chance to go for a month to tour Europe. And I was like, fine by me. I'm tired. I'm going to quit my job and we'll go for a month and live like Kobos basically for a month and travel all over Europe. And then when we got to Berlin, I was like, this is the ugliest damn city I've ever seen in my life. I'll never live here. So fast forward, you know, I lived there nine years and I loved it. But Berlin was just like the place to be at that time. I mean, you guys all know this. What years was this? I think we arrived in 2004. About that time. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and so it was really like heating up. I and mean, we were we were not pioneers by any means. People have already way been there. It was just the best place to meet people in music and art. And again, going over to my own artwork and its, its relationship to music, that actually colored it a lot because I, I went to a lot of concerts. And I saw people really excited over music. I was like, why doesn't art have the same excitement? You know, like really sweating and jumping up and down and screaming and rolling around on the floor. I was like, why doesn't art have that? And then I started to kind of combine a lot of these elements together and make these performances. And that was really influenced a lot by all of the concerts and all of the time I spent in Berlin just seeing performances. That is a really good point. What, what was your first performance and how did that come about? The first performance was at my gallery in Berlin, Wentrop Gallery. And it's in a pretty big converted garage. And so it had these big doors in the front and there was a Land Rover that was always parked outside. And I was like, well, I really want to do a performance and I want to bring this Land Rover into the gallery and use it as a stage and kind of this Neo. It wasn't Mad Max. Maybe there was like a little thought of this idea. And so we rolled into the gallery and we had the first performance. So I used it as a stage. And I think in a way it was confusing a little bit, like, I'm not dissatisfied with this, but people were like, well, why isn't this a concert? And I was like, well, to me, it's definitely a performance. Like, I shaped the music, I, I revised the music, I edited it, and I asked a singer who actually lived in New York but had at that point lived in Vienna to help me create a song which I considered like an artwork. And that was the first performance. And then I had like a wonderful group of women that I knew in Berlin, and we put costumes on and... They took on certain roles, but they all had their own, you know, their own lives. Somebody was like, why don't you use models? And I was like, I don't want to use models. I want to use like real women who have real backstories and have real faces. So we, we put on these costumes and we did makeup and people were like, these women are so beautiful. Are they models? And I was like, you know, they're attractive women. But if you saw them on the street, you know, you wouldn't pick them out like, oh, that's a model. And I think that's very important to me. The song that we did, the first performance was Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath. And the reason I chose that, first of all, I love that song. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And secondly, I wanted a woman to sing a song about a relationship that didn't have to do with a man. You know, wasn't like pining away, like, I want you, why, why aren't you with me? I mean, it's a drug reference, but I've known that song since I was a kid. I was friends with like the main stoner at my high school. And 
I think in a way the people I went to high school with almost had more caring for that song <laughs> and what it represented than they did for an actual human. You know, I kind of wanted to explore that. Yeah, where the song becomes your girlfriend or boyfriend. Yeah, or even a closer relationship. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you relate to it so heavily, and it's like, what is that about? Because I never felt that way in high school, but I kind of wanted to go back and think about that a little bit. Again, I like to flip things around and pick out different parts, and my singer helped me do that, so we collaborated. And I felt like a, a director. I loved it. It was the greatest experience, and it was fun. So I was like, okay, this is a lot of fun, and there's a lot of the energy I wanted to capture when I saw live performances by regular music groups. And we did that. And the art audience was hilarious because they were not used to having something really loud happen at an art gallery. So they were like holding their ears like, oh my God. Yeah, I saw some of the audience. They were sort of in the mode of like, we should be looking at paintings. Some of them, it was interesting. And people afterwards were like, oh my God, that was amazing. And I had so much fun. But just this like kind of wimpy reaction with the people you know, it's like, come on, you know, but it, it was a great experience because I think people had a great time. For me, it was just personally satisfying. That's exactly what I wanted. And that was the first performance. What made you come across the choices from the other songs? Wasn't there, was there an Ink Spot song or am I making that up? No, there was an Ink Spot song because that was a performance and it was about Anita Berber. And Anita Berber was a very well-known singer and personality in 20s Berlin and she was the ultimate, ultimate, like wild, crazy personality. And she hung out at different clubs, but she took all kinds of drugs and she would seduce everyone. There are all these legends about her. I don't feel like that's as totally successful as I wanted it to be, but I wanted something that represented like a 20s Berlin kind of vibe. So I had the ink spots. I don't want to set the world on fire. That's the song. Right, yes. Yeah, and when you start like saying those words in like a very slow cadence, it reminded me of maybe pre-Hitler or leading up to Hitler Germany because the, the lyrics become very sinister. You know, if you say like, I don't want to set the world on fire. And if you say like, <laughs> I don't want to set the world on fire. You know, it's really like very medley, also very scary. So... It's like, or maybe I do. Yeah, when you do it like that, it definitely is like, well, now that you say it, it sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Obviously, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to do that. Uh, fingers crossed. It was talking a little bit about that, too. I love the ink spots also. They're very special. Again, I mean, I never thought of myself as a real music nerd because I know so many super, super deep music nerds. But I, I, I kind of am, and I always have been, but only in my own quirky way. I don't need to spend hours trolling for records. I don't need to know everything about a genre, but I do know more about music than I ever thought I did, to be honest. You might be a little bit of a music nerd. I'm a touch, touch. Like even when I was a kid, I always subscribed to various music magazines. And I was also into like kind of California hardcore a little bit when I was a kid in general. I used to get a lot of zines and SST had a zine that I would subscribe to. And I used to read Spin and Rolling Stone and subscribe to those. So the only reason I wouldn't say I was a music nerd is because I liked maybe more popular music. And I just don't think of myself as a music nerd because I knew, know too many people that, yeah, like, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, like our sound editor, Justin, is a music nerd. Hell, hell, outshine us in music nerddom. Justin so. isn't a music nerd. He's a sound nerd. He's both. He goes way <laughs> beyond that into like the particles. <laughs> yeah, but I'm all over the place. So I, that's why I can't, you know, I could never like meet 
a super metalhead and just be, oh, and that record and this, oh my God, this song and record. I never could do that. I don't, you know, have any desire to do that. Once you start to get into like, oh, the bass player from 1982 for Crocus was blah, blah, blah. Then you're just like, what? How do you know that? Why do you know that? You know? I just like that you dropped the word Crocus in there. That's Dude, it's Crocus, man. (laughs) Well, it is Crocus. I mean, they were better than Grotus, but not as good as Orchid. The second Orchid, not the 70s Orchid. Oh my God, nerddom, no. (laughs) The thing about like, how come art is not as exciting as music is like eternal heartbreaking question. I always thought it was super touching that David Bowie painted. Mm -hmm. The boy who has everything wants my job. That's so cute. So a lot of people are like that. I mean, even George Bush painted. Like, you know, he's (laughs) like... I must paint. You know, you're like, God, really? I think it is funny. I think Steve Jobs probably would have wanted to be an artist. It is weird when you do something and somebody else wants to do it. Really? Why? (laughs) It is funny. I I never saw any David Bowie paintings. Not that I know of. They're findable. They're very like a 70s German neo-expressionists, kind of like that. Yeah, they're okay. I mean, they're like... A celebrity painting. It's funny to be like, oh, David Bowie's anything is like just okay. You know, dancing in the streets is is considerably worse than like a lot of things. <laughs> Let's be clear. Like he did like amazing music and he did some terrible music and that's just the music. But he's, you know, kept making stuff. Good for him. Well, it's funny because I love the song Under Pressure. And sometimes I'm like, when that song came out, was it acceptable as a good song? I mean, I think it's a good song now. And I love Queen, you know, so of course that's awesome. But I'm not so sure when that song came out, people were like, that's a little bit like dancing in the streets. I don't know. It's hard to say. The weird thing to me is that when Queen came out, Queen was acceptable. You listen to Queen now and you're like, this is crazy avant-garde shit. Like they're playing a metal song and then they stop and then they're on Broadway in the middle of the song. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. Now I think a lot about how kids react to things. And I remember being a kid and Queen became more known, like 80s Queen. (laughs) We were like, I think they're gay. You know, it's like whispered things about what made Queen also different. And I mean, we were talking about Freddie Mercury, but even as a kid, like Queen was considered like a different kind of band. Yeah. My husband's always forcing me to watch Flash Gordon. Oh my God, that movie. Forcing you. (laughs) Yes, forcing me. What about Barbarella? If I imagine the Gen Ray DJ John Summer household, (laughs) DJ John Summer's like, let's watch Flash Gordon. I'm fucked up from the night at the club. And you're like, I've been at the drafting table. Put Flash Gordon away. We're going to watch Barbarella, which is a real work of art. That's my imagination. Or Willy Wonka. Just like uh, high school in South Carolina, I may be totally off. Well, I've seen Barbarella many, 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 many times. That is for sure. And I have to say the first time I saw it, I did not like it. The the problem with Barbarella is there's a little bit of, uh, like, where is this guy's head who's making the movie is it an ex- exploitation movie? And it's just difficult to wrap your head around. But I've seen it so many times. Like, I think Jane Fonda's character has a lot going for her. Like, she's smart and she's tough and she's futuristic. So I've learned to appreciate that movie a lot more. And of course, it's, I mean, the sets are amazing and the costumes are just incredible. And Jane Fonda is gorgeous. I mean, really. Yeah, I was about to say, that's one of the things she had going for her. Being- yeah, she. <laughs> One of those little things. That goes far. Like the creepy dolls in that movie are amazing. Like they're just like a horror movie thing out of nowhere. The backstory I heard was like Roger Vadim, director, and Jane Fonda, like this period of their life, they were just having like crazy sex parties at their house all the time. 
I I'm interested in the way that like every single thing you talk about is influencing you. You're a little bit embarrassed about, or like have a conflicted it's true feelings about, and that's interesting because in the work, if you hadn't said that. I would just be like, oh. Yeah, there might be like, oh, okay, Barbarella, really? But I would say we would probably put on Danger Diabolic before we would put on Barbarella. I love Danger Diabolic. I mean, I love the car. I love the whole damn thing. It's like, it's a cartoon. You know, you're looking at a comic strip. And Barbarella's the same way. It's a comic. So I don't think you should honestly read anything too deeply into it. You can just enjoy it. But the only reason I would say like a little embarrassment is because I'd hate for someone just to take it at face value that, oh, I just love so-and-so. That's end of story. You know, (laughs) I spend a lot of time kind of examining my motives and I'm really aware of some of the pitfalls. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, I don't know if you uh, you get this sometimes. I mean, I do, but I mean, the pitfalls are really complicated. Exactly. In terms of like what you care about. There's a mass movie, you know, that everyone's going to see and they have one set of things that you probably want to do and not do. And then there's like a movie that only adults are going to see and that's different. And then there's like gallery art, which like eight people are going to see. Right. My perception of the pitfalls might be different than yours, you know, and I think every artist... Do you think about the mass audience when you think about your work? Or do you just think about, well, what am I saying to gallery goers? I don't know, because I've done a lot of crossover stuff. I, I think it's very much a different world. Like, you know, one minute you're designing someone's album cover and then you're doing a gallery show. You know, someone's asked you to do a commission. You know, there's lots of different angles to it now. So I would hate to think of my work just existing in a gallery space. And actually, when I set out to do the work that I do now, it was because there were a lot of other people leading the way in this world of crossovers. And I was like, oh, okay, for once, I don't have to be in just this rarefied world of the gallery and trying to live up to these expectations of what I think, quote, art with a capital A or a gallery is, because there's so many different things happening. Artists making music, that was another thing, like musicians working with artists together. And so there was just so much. It was such a rich vein to mine. I would say that's how I really became involved in my current work. Mm. And so I don't mind all the crossovers. I can tell you that my main inspiration was a Cheryl Teague's poster, you know, from 1978, if I want to. And it's not a negative. It probably is an influence that other people had at the same time. Not that that is my influence, although my neighbor did have that poster. (laughs) You remember it. The one where she has the feathered hair. My neighbors across the street were kind of, had a kind of a gross house, like, They fed their dog just table scraps, so their dog weighed like 500 pounds. And then they had like, their parents had like a big pornography collection. And then they (laughs) had like, in their rooms, kiss posters. These were kids, like not even teens. Like kiss posters and Farrah Fawcett, Cheryl Teagues. This is stuff my parents would have never let me have. It was just a really trashy, I shouldn't say this, but anyway, kind of a trashy household. And um, I think it greatly influenced me. It was like... It was like a a decadence early on where I was like, this feels yucky. Like, it's the first place I saw, like, Friday the 13th and the first place I saw anything traumatizing, essentially. I think a lot of people have that experience in a certain (laughs) sense of, like, there's that one kid whose parents let them have this stuff. Right. And that's the good stuff. For creative people, it's the good stuff. I mean, maybe it scars everyone else for life. Like everything that's kind of secret and like coming out of the secret woodwork is really influencing you. It, it is. And and you know that there's something secret about it as a kid. Like I look at the world through my kid's eyes now and I'm like, ooh, I hope he doesn't ever see that. You know, I remember just the whole place was just seedy. You know, it's like this, they had a, a sticker on their shower that said, save water, 
shower together and it had like two naked people in the kids' bathroom. <laughs> it was just so base and, you know, but it, but it, it stuck with me. I mean, if I asked my sister about this house, my sister is only a year younger than I am. I think she'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't remember any of that stuff. Okay, here's a, another great example. They had a Stretch Armstrong doll. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was made out of rubber. Yeah, yeah it's rubber. It stretches. Uh-huh. And it was like the first house where like the kids stabbed it so we could see what was inside of it. <laughs> no, I mean, I totally know exactly what you mean. So like he's it. like, let's stab it. You know, it's just like that kind of household. We were like, yeah, look, there's goo inside. Awesome. That one kid, you know, like where it's just like anything goes. Priest is playing in the background the whole time. And the other thing was how we grew up or how I grew up is that Nobody really checked on you. You know, it's like, well, why wouldn't my parents know I was over at a house stabbing a doll and watching Friday the 13th? You know, nobody ever questioned it. It wasn't an official play date. You just were over there. Oh, my God, no. And it just came back when it got dark. And the other thing is, like, I went to church a lot. My best friend was the minister's daughter. And so I also spent a lot of time at church. And my mother never asked me one time what I was learning at church, which is, I think is kind of weird. Like, I went to church three days a week for years. Wouldn't you ask like, your hey, what you learning about there? The, <laughs> the fact that we had and have a culture which has church with completely unmonitored <laughs> content along with kiss with completely right. unmonitored content in right. a daily life of a person and that's not really weird. <laughs> that is weird. Like, <laughs> like that's America. It's like, you know, you have these people who are like, they go to church and then like, then they go see Insane Clown Posse and that is their life. And both of those things are full of content, full of words and messages. <laughs> and some of them are old and like thousands of years worth of like culture. And people are just like, those are just two things sitting on the coffee table. Yeah, I think one reason it's hard to deal with it is because most of the things that we deal with are like TV or movies. And in a TV or movies, it's really hard to reference another TV show or another movie. You know, like you can't talk about all the lyrics on a Kiss album in a TV show, even though like it's a fucking complicated hell of a load of messages right there. Like going blind. What is that even about? Like, <laughs> like just that song isn't long enough for just that playing in your while you're waiting for your mom to get back from the bank. To parse that. And that's something that happens to Americans all the time. That's what I mean about moving back here. I'm used to it, but it's just such extremes that, like, if you tell some Europeans about something like that, they basically equate that with abuse, you know? And I'm like, well, that's not abuse. That's just normal. But um, it's funny. Now kids are controlled just a lot more, or at least mine is much more controlled. And I would never let him just run outside and go to the neighbor's house and spend six hours. I mean. But I mean, you've also, you've kind of gone from the country to the city too. So. No, because where I live here, it's a very safe, nice environment, which I'm very suspicious of. And that makes me nervous that it's so nice. It's like a suburb and it's, you know, a lot of people with money. Um, But I do think about that. I'm like, if he's an artist, will he be exposed to enough texture in life to build something, those extremes that I had. I mean, but you, you don't want to wish that on a kid. Like, I just wouldn't let him like, and also my teen years, you know, it's like, well, we're going out. We're going to spend some time at a guy's house out in the woods and drink Everclear. <laughs> I'll be back in five <laughs> hours while I drive a Honda by myself. You know, I mean, I don't know. It just wasn't very restrictive. And that was normal. My parents were normal. What I was, I guess I was trying to say is that, like, I actually think that there's people who are doing that. They're just 
once you be, you know, you go to art school, you become an artist, you get a, a real job, you get interviewed on podcasts. Right. You've moved out of a culture of like people who are overlapping with that life. Mm. And so the world is getting more that way, but you know, you're out of that. And I also think like people in Berlin, they will talk about people who are not in Berlin, like they're just hicks, you know, yeah. but it's like when we go to Europe, we go to the cities and I experience an urban international culture that's been put together through cities. But mm-hmm. then if you look at voting demographics and like how people use their cars, it's like all these little places outside Berlin, outside of Paris is full of hicks, you know, and they're just Euro hicks. Just a different kind of hick. Yeah, but we're not in touch with that anymore because we're, you know, grownups now. And mm. That's very true. I mean, I'm our family is formed by cities. We live next to a lake here in a very nice area, but I was like, how am I going to live without a shop that's open 24 hours and, and of course we have gas stations here, but like I meant like a corner shop, especially from living in New York. I lived in Atlanta, then I lived in New York, then I lived in Berlin. And when I was in Berlin, I traveled pretty heavily. And I was like, how can I live not in a city? But anyway, you can do it, but I miss that city life and the exposure you get from being in a city. But it's funny because I took my son to New York and we had several like little adventures, like New York style. And I was like, well... <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your parenting approach with, with your son. Do you consider yourself cautious? Or are you just a, a hippie parent? No, parent? I'm like a 70s parent. Oh. I think that people need to let so much shit go. You know, just like let them do some things and don't worry about it too much. I mean, I'm paranoid because I'm like a crime aficionado also. I love to read about crime. So, of course, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, if you do that, somebody's going to, you know, attack you. But I probably let my son do more. Like today we were supposed to go roller skating at a roller skating rink that I used to go to as a kid, like total 80s style. Uh We were going to go put on those brown clunky skates and skate around to like disco hits and play video games. And anyway, it was closed. (laughs) So we went bowling instead. But I I want him to have like a wide variety of like kind of funny experiences and just different things and be exposed to art and be exposed to a lot of different food. I just don't want him to end up like where I grew up. People would like not eat Chinese food. (laughs) So yeah, I'm trying to force sushi on him all the time. And like, you know, he's, he's pretty well-rounded, but it's funny that we named him Wolfgang. His name's Wolfgang Maximilian. Every time I hear it, like my cousin named her son Huckleberry. I'm like, Huckleberry. (laughs) That's ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, right. You guys just don't give a shit. (laughs) Wolfgang and Huckleberry hanging out. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't, I never have liked hippies, but I'd say more of a punkish approach and a very 70s feeling about things. I don't worry about peanuts, in other words. (laughs) Oh, my school and peanuts. Oof. What the heck is going on with those peanuts? When I moved back, I was like, in Germany, nobody mentioned peanuts. Like, what the hell are you doing? And in Germany, style is very much more 70s, it's much more loose. And it's about being outside and eating stuff. Sounds good to me. <laughs> it's low stress. Nobody's stressing kids out. It's like, just do your thing. I wanted to ask about like, so you're like, oh, music is exciting. And I'm going to put together these performances. Did that work? Like, do you feel yeah. like you were accessing that sort of ecstatic? Yes. I think some performances come off better than others, partly because of how I set them up or source material. But the first one was set to the song Sweet Leaf. Yeah. I feel like that really encompassed everything I was trying to do. And the last one I just had in New York where we did American Woman, it was just amazing. And again, a lot of it is the energy from the performers. They're really giving it everything. 
And they're so into it. You know, because they're not just acting it, they're really living it and into it. It makes everyone excited. And I think the audience, people were thrilled when she sang that song. I mean, I, I don't take, it's not like I'm some egomaniac where I'm like, oh, look at me, I created that. It, you know, it's, it's a lot also about the performers. And I asked them to collaborate with me very specifically because they bring their own energy to it. Even though I, again, I'm like a director. I say, okay, well, let's try it like this or let's emphasize this, for instance. But I think the audience was like, I mean, afterwards people were like, oh my God, that's amazing. Can you walk us a little bit through the process of how you like recruit the people and how you work with them to get a performance to happen? I mean, luckily I have a huge network at this point of female performers. Maybe, I'm sure if we talked long enough, we would find someone that we both know (laughs) in that area. Um, Because I knew a lot of people in Berlin, especially that did a lot of performance art, like high level dance and burlesque and, but really good. Yeah. And when I was in New York, I used to go to the slipper room a lot. So, I mean, I think that informed what happened to me eventually. So I, I developed this pretty big network. So if I latch onto a song that I want to really examine for a performance and like really think about and reshape, I often think like, oh, who, who would be really interesting as the person that would interpret this? For instance, Honeychild Coleman is the person that sang the one in New York. And I knew her through she had performed with Peaches, and I also know Peaches. So she had been a performer with the Slits. Honeychild did. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'd really like to talk about this whole kind of Afropunk thing and like punk in New York in the 90s and feminism. And so Honeychild just seemed like a great person. And she's very talented, super talented. So I just contacted her and I was like, well, I'm thinking about this, you know, can we collaborate over the course of a year? Like, I'll come to New York and we'll go to your studio and we'll interpret it, work on it, talk about it, talk about what I'm trying to say. And so we did that on and off for a year. And then it came time for the performance and we worked really heavily on it. And then a friend of mine who's an actress in Berlin, she came over and she does the intro. intro. And she's the one, if you see in the video, she's like, you know, she's actually, she's singing Public Enemy, but she's singing it in German. And so that was also an explanation of going back to our previous thing, we were talking about a little bit about race and race in Germany and race as it relates to Americans. So that's a little bit of a bridge there also because she had to sing Public Enemy, but she didn't really understand like right. the essence of the words and like what certain slang was. She's like, why, do you, why are you saying step? And I'm like, no, it's step. You know, we had to go over it. And that's part of the process, you know, is like the interpretation things. I should probably make like a mini movie of how it's created because to me, that's also very interesting. Right. Going over things. What's a terror dome? <laughs> What's a, what the heck is a terror dome? And she didn't really know that much about that style of music. So we, we went over it. And meanwhile, Honeychild is closely connected with Public Enemy. I won't go into it, but anyway, she has a connection to that also. And so in a way, it's very mysterious when everything comes together, whether it will be successful And that's part of this tension that I personally love. Well, that's why it's a performance and not theater, right? Because you you don't know if it'll work. Even though you practice, like sometimes at rehearsal, I'm like, oh my God, that's not going to work. Nobody's going to get it. It's horrible. And then it just comes together, man. And it feels so good. I mean, I'm cheering during it. Even though I somewhat created it, I'm cheering for the performers. I'm cheering for these women who I love and the way they look, and the way they sound, and the power that comes off of them. I just, just thinking back on it, I'm like, yes, so good. 
So how does that relate to the drawings and paintings for you? Do you feel like it's as much yours? Do you feel like it's like a creation in the same way? How do the energies relate to you? Well, when I first started doing the performance, I, I actually would say to people, it will be a tableau vivant. I didn't really have it in my mind fully realized. So I thought that the women that are in the drawings would kind of step off the drawings and create a tableau and there would be music playing somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so when I started working with these women and putting them in costumes, it just didn't turn out that way. It's like they had too much energy or their own personality. So I had to kind of like tweak it to be something else. So I, I continue to tell people, oh, well, the women in the performances are as if they came off of the painting. But I'm not quite sure if that really flies anymore. I think they become quite separate. But I use the drawings as a way to show groups of women and imagine groups of women. And then the performances are groups of women. And they're dressed in a costume that ties it all together. So there is like a clear connection you know, and the drawings are created in solitude. They're really like something that's very personal for me. And the performance is so public. So they have some differences, but how they were originally conceived is that they would come from the drawings. Do you ever have a thing which is like kind of an opening of your art show, but kind of a performance and kind of just a party? Or, do you, or the performance is sort of specific things that are on their own. Yeah, the the performances are very specific to me and they're they're art pieces to me and they are controlled. Like I don't like a lot of winging it. I I allow the performance to do their thing within kind of parameters. Right. The parties afterwards, and I mean if the party wants to get like crazy insane wild, go for it, but I would never want to try to create something that open. You know, I don't know. Right. So it's a discrete thing for you. Because that's like a, a different space. Uh -huh. So in a way that the, the performances are as contained as the drawings and paintings are. Totally. And they and they happen, like, they're also very organized as far as the timing. You know, they someone comes onto this staging area, this happens, then this happens, then this all happens, then they leave. Sometimes people are like, well, why don't you just let the performers just wander off into the audience? And I'm like, well, I don't really want to do that. It's not, it's not controlled enough for me. Like, I like to create a feeling, and then it's gone. It's done. It's over. Like a song. Yeah, and I, I just don't like to mess up the stagecraft. I don't want to see how you make something. I don't want to see how the sausage is made. That's interesting. You don't like the director's commentary? If it's funny, yes, but I would prefer there to be this mystery and this mystery of something that happens and you get this feeling and then it's gone. You know, the person, they go off stage. Yeah. I mean, because they, they feel like that, the things that you've said up till now, like it, I could see them going both ways. And so I was just interested in which way you felt it was. I mean, I have the performers sometimes like push people out of the way. Like I consider the performers, you know, otherworldly. They're coming into a setting. They have to push you aside in order to create their ritual, and then they leave. And they care nothing about the audience personally. I mean, I tell them also not to look, not to smile or look at the audience because they don't need the audience. They could create that on their own just as easily without anyone there. I don't know. For some reason, that's important to me. Well, I mean, I think that makes them more like the paintings. Like, you're seeing a window into an alternate 
version of reality rather than you're trying to shake up a bunch of gallery goers into changing their space, you know? <laughs> I don't know. When people get pushed or shoved aside, it's so funny because they do love it. They're like, oh, cool. Someone pushed me. <laughs> it, it also speaks to that you were saying, like, you didn't come up with your paintings. Like, you didn't care if the audience got it or not. It's the same thing again here. I mean, I think as an artist, there's so many people that are super sensitive to that. I'm not immune to it, but everyone will have some criticism directed towards whatever creative endeavor they do. And it was just a shell that I decided to create for myself to not care, to try my best not to care, like to create my own worlds and not worry about anything else. Like they're indifferent Gigi Allens. <laughs> I think Gigi Allen is so hard to contain. You know, I can't even imagine equating that with him. Although it's funny because again, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, ew, Gigi Allen's so disgusting. But now I'm like, well, <laughs> He might have something there. He, he's got that special something about him now that he's dead. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, in, I'm interested in transgressive behavior and extreme behavior, but more as an observer and a, someone that thinks about it a lot. I mean, I've had my share of adventures, but Gigi Allen is a person that really harmed himself a lot. And I'm not harmful in that way. And I wouldn't want my characters to harm themselves unless they wanted to do something adventurous, you know? I'm not a self-destructive person, and I don't consider my characters self-destructive. Yeah, I could see that. They're heroic. Yeah, they are, they're heroic, but flawed. I mean, I do believe in, like, flawed people. Deeply, deeply believe in it. It's one of my interests. You know, I, I think that often people put women on pedestals or, like, just this hero. I, I don't – being a woman, it's very visceral, you know? I don't – It's it's very freeing to be like, I'm flawed. Whew, now I can breathe. You know, like when you get some new shoes and you finally get that first scuff on them, like, good. Now I don't have to worry about these shoes anymore. Exactly. I mean, I it's 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 good. I think it would be very difficult to try to be some kind of hero all the time. I mean, who wants that? It's not fun either. Has anybody ever said anything about your work where you were like, that's really dead on, or conversely, you really missed the point? Because, I mean, I feel like you think about what your work means, it sounds like, is something that you're saying. There are certain people that totally get what I'm doing, and I just hold those people very close. <laughs> you know, there are people that just look at things on the surface and blurt out a bunch of weird stuff, and you're like, all right. I mean, I'm not offended. Like, I had a friend, a really good friend. She's like, well, I don't even get what you're doing. And I was like, what? Really? And she's like a pretty close friend. We were friends. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were friends. I cut her right off. <laughs> and I don't really have time to justify anything to anyone. So I was like, okay, <laughs> so be it. I want to talk about purple now. <laughs> but I, I honestly do actually want to talk about purple because like <laughs> in all the stuff that you've been talking about, like purple's not a heavy metal color, <laughs> but it does show up in old sci-fi when they would represent space as not black with white dots, but as this sort of phantasmagorical stuff in the sky that they had to kind of make up. And also it appears in like French, like Montreal-y carnival imagery, like mimes and stuff, like purple is like a, a thing. And also so, a little bit in fashion. The purple in the drawings and paintings, it's that other note. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but like that comes from another world for me than than the, than the rock 
stuff. That's like more of a a fantasy world kind of it's almost French or something. My favorite color would it be this? I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this purple gray that's like right on the edge of either being purple or gray. <laughs> and I had an exhibition and I painted the walls this purple gray. And I think purple is interesting because it definitely is one of those art colors. It's not an art color, like a gallery color. They don't want purple. They don't want yellow. That's another like weird no-go color. I also love like the incredibly light, light yellow Again, when I was in art school, people were like, don't use yellow. I don't know why. It's like, what? Don't use yellow. I love purple too, actually, yes. Yeah. The purple seemed to have its own story. And it's weird because I always want to put two colors together, which are hideous. And I I do it all the time. And I, I hate it, but I keep doing it. It's purple and red. Those two colors next to each other are incredibly unsuccessful colors. As soon as I do it, I'm like, damn, I did it again. I put purple next to red. Shit. But <laughs> so one day I will successfully put purple next to red. But I do love, you know, like deep, deep purple is just, just the most gorgeous. So, Do you like deep purple? I do like deep purple. <laughs> the band and the color. <laughs> that album cover for the Book of Taliesin seems like a Jen Ray-ish kind of... <laughs> Album. There's a lot of like little linear drawing in there. Um, what you get, I'm like, uh, uh, okay, no one's ever called me out on that. <laughs> I think also, I'm not sure when that album came out, like what year, but I mean, certainly when I was a kid, I was already fascinated by line drawing. And I probably saw that album at someone's house. You know, I probably looked at it. And I should revisit it because that album looks very fresh today, that album cover. I just haven't thought about it in ages. And it's so funny because Deep Purple is supposed to be like kind of proto-metal-ish, but that album cover is also weird. It's like hippie-ish a little. I don't know. I'll have to look at it again. Yeah, it's like they were figuring it out as they went along, you know? Yeah, I think it was more some 60s thing, but I'm sure that at some hippie hideaway I saw that. Oh, God, yeah. I'm looking at it now, and it's like there's lots of purple next to red, (laughs) and there's like floating islands. There's all these people in goofy costumes and they're holding things and they're on little platforms that float. Oh my God. Yeah. All right. I have to go get this album immediately. Seriously. Yeah. Like in my mind, it was much simpler. It just looked kind of like Revolver, but it's actually like, it's a pretty complicated fucking image on that cover. Revolver. I mean, I stared at that cover many many hours and even today i'm like wow like what a great cover you know it's amazing it's so complex and simple at the same time so again being from a beatles heavy household i would say revolver definitely i thought well if one day i could draw like that (laughs) just like revolver (laughs) it's my dream for sure we didn't have that actually didn't my parents didn't have that many records we had like abba the Beatles, the Beach Boys. It seems like what you're saying is like you're trying to access all these things that were on the periphery of what of the default life that that you were being asked to live through. It was like all these things that were just outside of what you were expected to be able to get in touch with. Yeah, I just think it's funny, like what floats your way, especially as a kid. You know, I, I guess what you seize on for your materials, your mental materials that you use later. But 
I do think about that a lot also in terms of kids. Like, what do you have in your environment that you're going to draw from? Literally and figuratively, you know, what if you, you just never run across a bunch of stuff that you could use? I don't know. I found enough material growing up somehow as an artist. But God only knows, like, maybe if I'd grown up in a different household, it would be kind of a different, different artwork. I don't know. We had a lot of books, though. A lot of books in my house. So we were always big readers. And I think that influenced my whole family quite a bit. Do you have like specific stories behind these pictures that you know, or do you kind of make them up as you go along? Or I do have stories. I mean, I listen to a lot of news. I try to pretend like I'm this cool person in the studio, like rock it out. And honestly, I'm listening to a lot of news. Often I interweave kind of allegorical stories into the paintings, but I kind of forget about them afterwards. And then sometimes there's like jokes, like just things that I find humorous. But later on, sometimes I'm hard pressed to figure out like what that was. A lot of times they're also meant to be funny. To me, they're funny. Like I I have these pieces where it's like a giant with these little characters below them. And I I just thought that was very funny. You know, (laughs) this huge woman and these small figures. A lot of times my characters in the paintings will be working at an office or, or just doing like really dull things. And they're next to someone doing something exciting. So I always think that's, you know, you have to move papers around. Even if you're in like a rebel group, like someone has to control a budget. (laughs) I find that amusing. There's definitely like all these details. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you like listen to the news because this is like slow work. The physical manufacture of them is like a person with a pen moving slowly to get the lines to be parallel. And that's just like a different speed than if you're like like a dance the work itself is methodical even though the imagery is about lasers (laughs) right no it's true but I also I like to really think somehow while I'm doing them like today you know I'll I'll listen to a documentary I I really like Bergman movies so I was listening to um a documentary about Bergman and I, I don't know I mean I like to listen to music but I think that For me, I'd rather enjoy music separately a lot of times from the drawings. When I'm doing the drawings, I like to use my brain a little bit also just thinking about what's happening in the world. I mean, I go through different phases. Sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll like listen to a lot of biographies, things like that. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. Art's kind of a mystery in that way. It's like, how much does that inform the work? I'm not so sure exactly. They look like contemplative works as opposed to like the ultimate fast work would be like those Zen brush paintings where it's like a frog and it's been done in three seconds. Yeah. All of the meditation and thought has been turned into literally an action. And the picture is a record of that action of a, of a gesture, physically a gesture, you know, Uh like an action painting, you know, and these are not recording a gesture this is like something you're doing with your hands while thinking. Yes. I don't know if you make them all up as they go along, but it seems like you would think, oh, and what about this? And you kind of start to grow another part of the story out. That's exactly right. I have preliminary sketches and I have an idea of something I want to depict and they grow. They're like different parts are very organic in that I'm like, well let's try this or let me think about this. Like I rough it all out. Like I know the basic form of the painting, but I allow myself space 
to experiment within the painting, conceptually and otherwise. Because if I mapped it out completely in advance, which I could do, I mean, I have that training, it would be so boring. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. Oh, my God. Because I've tried it. I'm like, well, it would be a lot easier if I just drew a detailed drawing and then just kind of transferred it. The way I work, if I were that kind of artist, I just wouldn't have any interest in being an artist. You know, it's I, I need to be able to form things within the painting as I go along. It makes it more exciting. Cause then I'll, I'll be like, Oh my God, I'm going to add so-and-so, you know, and I get really excited by it. And I want to return to the painting as soon as possible. That's really easy to relate to, you know, like you think of something and then you put it in rather than you think of it. And then a month later, you're like, okay, now it looks right. I'm sure you know exactly what I mean, because it's like, why do this stuff unless it stimulates you? You want to be surprised. Yes. What's it going to be? Like every day, like, I don't know what it's going to be. Let's find out me. And I'm pretty good at like, fixing or correcting things that I'm like, oh, okay, that didn't work. They're not perfect either. I would never want to be like, there are artists that do quote, perfect work. You know, it's like, there's no flaw. And I could never be that, that kind of artist either. Something just so shiny and proper and perfectly done. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fine. If you, if you work that way, I like to look at your work, but yeah, it'd be too dull for me to be honest. That'd be you. Yeah, it'll be me. <laughs> Again, I think it's going back to like who you really want to be. You know, like there's always room for change. I mean, things grow and progress, but I need a certain setup to also do the drawings. You know, I need I need a certain environment. I need a certain mindset. So I try to make that happen so I can do it. Do you look at all at Persian painting? I love the miniatures. I have looked at those in the past and I think those are just so beautiful and so incredible. I wouldn't say that's like a direct influence, but I certainly looked at those miniature paintings and thought, my God, <laughs> it's incredible. The way that the land in the background of those pictures kind of overlaps and it's like a series of objects that form the space. And it's like atmospheric perspective. Yeah, and also the colors, you know, those beautiful jewel tones and gold and as we were saying, purples and so beautiful. Cool. Well, Jen Ray, thanks so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Jen Ray's latest work at an exhibition called Season of the Witch, opening in Berlin, July 13th. And Zach has a piece in the show LA Intersections at the Fabian Castanier Gallery in Culver City through July 31st. The show also features works from Zess, James Jean, and Andrew Schultz among others. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is produced by Papeng and Mnemonic Recordings. One, two, Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Yeah, like our sound editor, Justin, is a music nerd. He'll he'll outshine us in music nerddom. Justin isn't a music nerd. He's a sound nerd. He's both. (laughs) He goes way beyond that into, like, the particles. (laughs) 